welcome to another edition of Hit the Lights podcast. I've got the return of a, of a previous guest, which is somewhat unusual. Um, we've had it before with Mike Page, but this time I've got uh, Ryan Dempsey again. How are we doing? I am very good, Gary. Thank you very much for for the invite. Coming back on and have a bit of a chat and see what we can see what we can under, uncover. <laughs> see what, yes, that's probably a good way of putting it. Um, so. Uh, Fill us in. How how's life been treating you? And obviously, I know you've been progressing heavily with uh, TCW in the background. How's everything going? Yeah, do you know something? I, I can't I can't really complain. With a, a few years back, I took the decision to kind of just focus on the things that really matter in in terms of driving the business and and making sure that the family and everything are happy. And um, a little bit of focus in that direction has has really made a big difference. And I definitely can't sit here and say the business is going amazing because of everything I've done. We, the the company has grown since the last time we spoke. I think probably when we spoke last time, the business wasn't making any money, and we were we were just trying our hardest to educate a sector and and move in and and we are completely flipped onto the other side now to that and and that's down to the people in the business, the the dedication that we've put forward and yeah, life, family everything's really good at the moment it is really good i mean one of the key things you kind of said there is is educating a, a sector how, how have you found that process has that been a, a difficult and challenging journey so yeah the when i say educating a sector it's i, I wouldn't say i've educated the sector to a brand new kind of viewpoint that risk didn't exist before tcw it is risk did it did exist and software did exist but the element to go into the engineering side when you when you look at risk people always assume the what i call the consequence of risk which is that it's the bit that happens right at the end whether it's a positive or a negative and there are software out there that build and and try and profile their solutions to the consequence and what we've built in tcw is an understanding on the variable factors that contribute to that consequence if that makes sense so it's almost yeah so uh, let me give you an example kind of on the spot here and and i'm sure you can edit this but we'll we'll, we'll go for it um <laughs> if i was to say to you the we're going to swim the english channel i'm going to swim the english channel we can we can assign a few elements of risk to that oh, is he going to drown is he going to get hit by a boat um is he going to have hypothermia there are many different things that contribute ultimately the end consequences that i would die from doing it mm. so we can build certain things in place to prevent that so we're gonna we're gonna have a life jacket we're gonna have a safety boat we're gonna do certain things to get there um weather's gonna be a factor and there's loads of different factors but the consequence is drowning in the english channel if i was to say to you i'm gonna ask my four-year-old son to swim the english channel the consequence is exactly the same, but the mm. variables are completely different. And that's what I mean by a lot of people really just focus on the consequence of risk as opposed to what makes up whether you achieve a positive or a negative result. And TCW has harnessed that and we've developed technology that really looks at all of the variables. So we predict risk, we prevent it and we, we can give people a much, much more power in their fingertips to manage safety. Mm. I mean, are you discovering things about the industry as TCW has developed? What an interesting question. <laughs> yeah, what an interesting question. 
one of the the great insights that we have is the amount of data that goes into TCW across the country. So when we spoke last, I would I would have said we probably managed around about 150 to 200,000 properties across a, a number of clients. As we sit here today, we manage about 1.7 million and we do in the region of 40 to 80,000 documents a week that go into our technology. Now, that's not all electrical. That splits across all the different compliance areas. And but the interesting thing is we've got a series of validations against, let's say, electrical documents. An EICR comes in an average of about 300 individual checks, circuits, reference methods, adiabatic resistance, R1, R2, ZS, ZEs, all of the different checks that we would do. Then what we find is if we get in any given week, we get 10,000 EICRs. And of those 10,000 EICRs, there is 100 errors of a particular type. Let's say the ZS value is greater than it should be. Mm. What's really interesting is every once in a while we get one electrician will challenge the calculations. And it's really hard for us to go back to them and say, are you aware across the whole country of the thousand or however many documents that have gone into the technology, you're the only electrician question in that check. Mm. And that's that's a really difficult one to marry up to. And sometimes it's a valid it's a valid thing. And we always say to people, we don't dictate compliance. So you might look at the ZS value and it might be higher than that permitted. And you might be one of those people that says, well, it can be because it's RCD protected. So it doesn't have to be that value. It can be less than 1667. And that might be you. But then we've got other clients who say, absolutely not. We, we want to understand that that additional protection is there. But the main protection for that is, is the device that's there that, that we look at the measured or the calculated ZS value as the regs tell us. Mm-hmm. And so it is really interesting in terms of the information that we're seeing and the differences of opinions of people. But I guess one of the other interesting things which I'm, I, I can share, but I'm not going to go into detail because I don't want to throw anybody under a bus is, What's really interesting is we can see that people within the M25 produce results different to people outside the M25. Hmm. We can see that particular ways of not results, ways that people fill in electrical documents are different geographically. And it's a very strange thing that and, and you can we've got. We can see who these people are, but it's very strange that people do them differently when we're all working from one standard. In what sense is that then? That your your anticipated values are typically ranging higher for various tests. Yeah. So you would say, um, let's say that the insulation resistance validation. Uh, some people put greater than two hundred. Some people greater than 299 some people put greater than 500 people say greater than 999 mm. but then a certain concentration or concentrated part of the uk will write greater than two meg mm. and they're, they're writing it that because the regulation states that depending on what the, the criteria is that greater than one or two meg is is a pass to the regs and when you ask them the question why are you putting greater you're not testing that at two meg so no, what's yeah. the result that's coming out on your test equipment? And we, we had a meeting with them, and this is why I wasn't going to throw them under the bus. And they said, if it's R, if a circuit is RCD protected, 
it's safe to assume that the insulation resistance will be greater than that that's required. And I says, are you, does that mean that you're not doing the test? Mm. And it kind of give you the bit of a winky wink. And it was, it's really interesting because you can see that and you can see other people who do that geographically. Mm. You can see people who put greater than two meg and, and then you see a particular contractor whose insulation resistance results are different throughout the country. And which gives you an, a feeling that they're true readings because they're 526 or they're greater than 200 or 210. And you can you get the feeling that they're actually doing the test, whereas this particular contractor or series of contractors always put greater than two meg. There's never anything other than that. And mm. that's what I mean by having visibility of certain things in the industry. It's it's, it's amazing to see. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, because there's obviously a lot of nuances with, you know, whatever the 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 tester, um, potentially education in, in various areas of the country, you know, what college you came from even potentially and what you're, what you're taught. Absolutely. And, yeah. and that's something that I think one of the, one of the things that's really difficult with the electrical industry is there is a lot of silos, I'd say, in terms of even all the way up to the top kind of committees and stuff. These are, these are silos that they don't want you in and they, they don't want to, they've got their friends and they don't want more people to come in and disrupt the, 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 the flow that they're doing. And the issue you've got with that is, although the data we have in TCW, it'd be, it'd be very easy to start sharing some of that derived insight, which is not personal data. It's not, it's not telling you that this particular engineer is doing something wrong. You can, you can generalize the information so it doesn't point at anybody in particular, but then it points to a location or an area within the country. There's nothing stopping us from taking that information and finding the colleges within that area and seeing, are you aware that the majority of Sparkies are doing this within this geographical area? Is that how you're teaching? And ultimately, by doing that, you would gradually improve the industry because everybody would be more consistent. But the problem you've got is nobody wants that information. People are happy with doing what they're doing now. And, and yeah, it's a shame because it would be nice to share that derived data and um, see, mm. see, see if that could help the industry. Yeah, and no, definitely, like like you say, you know, even just as something as simple as how many people or, or electricians are actually implementing AFDDs across installs, you yeah. know, you, you immediately get that sort of uh, feedback from, from the industry straight away, don't you? It's, um, yes, it's... I went to Electrical Safety First Product Safety Conference uh, last week, a couple of weeks ago. And whilst I was there, somebody said to me, you've got all of this data in in your product. What what does that data do? What can we do with that data? And as we were sat there, I says, what's the what information do you want to know? He said, I'd be really interested to know how many properties in that value that you've got still have rewirable 3036 fuses. And I said, I'll find out for you picked up the phone, clicked into the back end of TCW, typed in 3036 and told them there was 2,789 properties still with 3036 fuses. And he said, "I there's no way I can believe that what you've just done is true. I was like, mm. so I showed him where the data was. And and that's the value of, of having the data there. And, and yeah. you might come to us and see how many properties have got combustible consumer units. And all of that information yeah. is there and it's available to be used. But Currently not being. Yeah, which is which is insane because if you think of a Microsoft, a Google, they use every piece of data um, yeah. at their disposal. So why aren't we doing the same? Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really valid question to the industry. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. 
Um, obviously, in that time as well, we've seen the regs change. We've seen, um, you know, developments. We've now got the five yearly tests um, for tenants and stuff like that. Um, is that seeing an, an improvement in the documentation and the quality of installs? It's definitely not seeing you're not seeing the an improvement. Um, what you are seeing, and, and I, I, I was very critical of it initially, but I, I wasn't critical of the five yearly inspection because I think that is definitely the way to go is to have a frequency that people have to work towards because before it was very ambiguous it was very open do you know people saying though there isn't any regulation you've just got to go to a regulation four in the electricity at work regs that says every installation has to be maintained in a safe condition but how often should we do that so there was never a frequency so I'm, I'm all for having a frequency and and the bit that I was very critical of is not the electricians and not the industry wanting to make things safer but how the general consumer kind of looks at that and and how can you enforce it is probably the bit that i was worried about because all of the housing act has now changed and it says that private rented properties and and it'll soon be all rented properties need to have an a five yearly electrical safety check and then it quantifies that by saying an electrical safety check is an eicr the problem you have with that is it's still the same electricians who are testing. So the quality is still going to be the same. But if you identify an EICR with risk on it, it's the process after that that I think we're probably falling a little bit short on. And there isn't anybody there to enforce it. And we, we're, in, we're anticipating local authorities would enforce it. And I'm not entirely sure that they have the capacity to do that. So... It's a fantastic thing and we, we should have it every five years and we we should harness that information from those inspections and do more with it. But the enforcement thing, I think, is going to be a very difficult, difficult one to get to. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think the um, the 28 day rule as well, post inspection for rectification, I think is a great thing as well, making sure it's done and promptly. Um, I'm not sure how I think the wording was quite loose with regards to like C3 items and things like that. I thought it was a bit wishy-washy. And again, there's ways of negating, I suppose, financially around rectifying things such as that. But um, yeah, I think I think you're right. If you don't find the fault within the EICR, it's not going to end up on that 28 day period. So. Yeah, and, and let's just say, Gary, you're a let's say you're a landlord and you ask me to come and carry out a periodic inspection or an EICR in your property, and we we go to the regulations and we read it and we try and find the loophole. So what we're what we're looking for now is here's the Housing Act and that's what it says. Here's BS seven six seven one and that's what that says. And here's guidance notes three and that's what that says. And as we go through each of those documents, I come into you and say, I'll do you an EICR for fifty quid. And of that 50 quid, it will be fully compliant to the statements that have been made within these standards. Mm -hmm. You're thinking, perfect, saves me 270 odd quid or whatever the costs are. And I get that piece of paper. All I do then is I open up an EICR and in the extent of installation covered, I write full, fully to the BS 7671, 20% of accessories visually inspected without removing from fabric of building mm. and 20% of circuits tested sampling. And I write that statement in agreed limitations or operational limitations. 
I then only test two circuits and walk around the house into two rooms and visually inspect and then give you a satisfactory electrical inspection, knowing that 80% of your installation hasn't been looked at. But where's the where's the where's the non-conformity there? There isn't one. Yeah. You, you've got what you've got. I'm earning 50 quid. I can do five of them a day because I'm not really testing the installation, but I'm meeting what the standards are. So there's how you read things in a literal sense as to what they intending. I'm afraid is there's a there's a bit more work to do before we make it bulletproof. Yeah, I'm not sure we've ever really covered um, limitations sufficiently as to what constitute a, a, a physical limitation. Um, given the fact that, you know, you think things like, let's say, a very high chandelier in a property, you know, OK, you can't access it. But theoretically, you know, um, obstacles and things like that, that's part of the measures you would potentially anticipate as part of a, a compliance system. So. But it's how far you go again, isn't it? Because if you were to go, if you were to read the letter of BS7671 in reference method on circuit descriptions for the circuits where cables are buried in the walls in the fabric of the building, every reference method should be limitation because mm. you can't see it. You don't know. You, you can see it going out of the consumer unit and then into the back of a socket. You have absolutely no idea where that cable's installed. Mm. How it's clipped, if it's clipped, if it's in insulation, if it's in corpex, if it's in trunken, you have absolutely no idea. So why mm. are you writing a reference method? You should have limitation on every reference method. But yeah, it's again, it's how you interpret what the written word says as opposed to what you actually do. No, yeah, exactly. No, that's a very good point. I think the other part as well of uh, the recent updates is the the fire regulations. Um, we've obviously had, you know, escape routes, premature collapse. Uh, are you seeing any major changes within um, the documentation slash industry um, with regards to those? In terms of premature collapse, we're not seeing, I haven't seen anything significant in terms of that. What we have seen is people starting to code combustible consumer units different ways. So mm. we have... You can see a combustible consumer unit can be a C1, a C2 or a C3. And right across the country, people code them differently based on the location of the consumer unit. And I know, I think it might have been Beamer. It could have been, or it might have been somebody else that came out and produced a document that says you should only code a, a combustible consumer unit if it is under a wooden staircase or around the only exit to that property. Can't remember the exact words, but yeah, it's something yeah. along those lines. And so in that respect, they didn't tell you what you should code it. But the fact that they've stated that that is a risk, you would anticipate that to be a C2 because it's potentially dangerous in the event of something happening. Mm. But people are putting them down as C3s. And the other thing that we've had to do with TCW is one of the things we've noticed is people are very, very bad spellers and their grammar is appalling. And not everybody, but there is a lot of differences in the way that people write things. So for us to tell our clients that this property has a combustible consumer unit when the word combustible consumer unit is never used mm. is, is quite difficult for us because we've had to go through. We use something called NLP which is um, it's natural language processing, um, not to be mixed with 
um, no, no natural linguistic programming, which is how your brain kind of works. It's different to that. And what we've had to do is we've had to go through all of the different iterations of what a combustible consumer unit is. So a wooden fuse box, wooden consumer unit, plastic consumer unit, plastic fuse box, plastic FB, plastic CU, wooden CU, wooden FB. So there's so many different ways to word things for us to then try and give a client the ability to find it consistently. Um, but yeah, to, to answer your question, it's, I think I haven't seen things being referenced around escape routes yet. Um, I have seen, we've started to see changes to the combustible consumer units. We've started to see clients return, return documents where there is a, where there's a plastic consumer unit but that the electrician in the observations, I think it's in 5.6 where it says electromagnetic interference is identified. Um, people are ticking that and saying that they've checked that, but then they're writing a plastic consumer unit. And mm. so, yeah, there's we've seen things like that, but not not in terms of um, premature collapse. We haven't really seen much to do with that yet. OK, that's, that's interesting, I suppose, with um, I, I suppose predominantly you've got a lot of social housing as well and common walkways and areas um, so yeah, you'd probably hope in the next, I'd say at least five years, you're gonna you're gonna see, start seeing that reflected that um, potentially if there's plastic installs throughout them or whatever, um, that'll start reflecting. Uh, yeah, I hope so. I think you probably find them on the fire risk assessments more so, and and any good housing provider will have amended their specification around high rise buildings because the majority of high rise buildings that are kind of out there now would have been built in the 60s and 70s. And they were they're, they're brick, they're complete stone buildings. So for a Sparky to go in and, and rewire a flat in there, it's very difficult to channel out because it's just concrete and it it's really difficult. So what a lot of people should have built into their specification is that if it's surface mounted, then you will use the, the right types of clip. I think the LC clips was one of the ones that we used to use a, lot, a long time ago, but there's there's many different types now but you you would have written a specification that says any new rewires or install works will be installed in a particular manner or the good ones if they can will reuse the conduit that will have been put in originally if you can still get the cables through then you'd you'd rewire the property through the, the existing conduit so that you're not mounting cables in in the form of where they can collapse on anybody so yeah yeah, and I suppose it's one thing having a risk assessment, isn't it? I suppose it's knowing if you're compliant or not might be a slightly different question. But yeah, absolutely. Obviously, you've been on quite quite a journey with um, TCW, and I think it, it was obviously a foundation of an idea that you've you've started with, and and you've continued to develop. What what made you continue to strive and push that idea? Because obviously, as you mentioned, it was you know not necessarily making money when we last spoke and um, lots of businesses fail ultimately probably like 50 percent in the first few years um so what what kept you going what what kept the drive there to complete the journey i i think when you come up with an idea if you if you genuinely believe in the idea and where you can get to and you have passion for that and and you understand that it will make a difference that will gradually that'll keep you in the right direction it'll keep you motivated there are many there are many stories stories that I've I've kind of shared on social media in a, a long time ago around some of the you will hit 
a brick wall every single day at the beginning. You will want to say stop more times than you'll want to say go at the beginning. You will literally, the, the funniest one was we went to Electrical Industry Awards and I was invited by Napit or Napit, which I, I, I never can get that right. And we were on this table with all these kind of really senior people and there was just me from TCW. I'd been invited down there. And I remember they turned to me at the time and said, you got a free ticket, it's 400 and odd quid a ticket or something. You just get the wine for the table and that'll be fine. And I remember I went to the bar and I didn't have any money whatsoever. I'm in a tuxedo, I'm the chief executive of a software company. The perception is uh, high flying, he's got, he's got all this money because he's a chief exec. I had no money. I had, I had to get the wine, phone my wife, and she had to pay for it on her credit card over the phone at a bar. Now, I don't know if anybody's ever done that, but it's pretty embarrassing to do that in a bar full of people. And no one ever knew that. No one ever knew that I had to go through all of these stresses and pains. So, but I I knew that when I first came up with the idea, said to my business partners, Ben and Ian, if this can save one person's life, if this can make somebody make a decision that prevents a fire or an explosion or, or something of that nature, it's all been worth it. And I think we've done that 10 times over now. I think we've given people the ability to see so deep into the risk that they've prevented it 10 times over. And, and I genuinely believe that that's what, we, that's what we could build. That's what we could have. That's what we could do for people. And yeah, I, I, I wanted to quit more times than I wanted to keep going. And it just having the, and I, I'd have to say my wife, without a shadow of a doubt, if it wasn't for her, TCW wouldn't exist. I, I've said to her a million times, that is it. I'm just going to go back to housing. I'm going to go back and work in housing. I can't be bothered to deal with this grief of where am I going to get the next money from? Where am I going to get this from? How am I going to get to this location? Got invited to Vienna to meet an investor. It's like, how the hell am I going to get to Vienna? Couldn't book a hotel room. So I flew to Vienna on an easy jet flight or whatever it was, went to the meeting, and then left the meeting, went straight back to the airport and flew home on the, the most budget airline I could. And I, I don't know how I did that. I don't know where that money came from. And it's so I'd, I'd suggest that if anybody has an idea and they, they feel strongly about it, what have you got to lose? Just give it a go. And and I'm, I'm always I always see it to people. If you if you want to talk to me about an idea and you want to kind of share something with me in confidence and I can give you some advice. I'm not I'm not going to charge you anything. I don't want any shares in your business. But if I can help the next generation to come and bring something to the market that's going to make a big difference, you all of my knowledge, everything I've been through is I'm happy to share with anybody. So but it will be hard and, and you will want to quit. Yeah, no, definitely. It, it reminds me of that. Um, I think it's a Michael Jordan quote. You miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take. Uh, that's so true. It's so true. Yeah, so yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, I've always tried to live by that as well. It, in terms of uh, the kind of other things, the aspects that we've touched on with with um, the electrical industry and the state of it, and I was going to come on to competence. Um, I don't know if necessarily you can have too much of an opinion, but obviously, you, like we say, you see a heck of a lot of data coming through. Uh, is competence still a massive issue in the industry for, for you? Um, I would say, and again, it's a really interesting question and it's something that can be debated 
all over the place and you've got people in the industry are saying you're you're only competent if you've got a gold card and I'm sorry but I have met so many people with a gold card who I wouldn't let them wire a plug in my house mm. just they yes it it ticks some of the boxes but I would never say that it makes you competent but if I was to refer to TCW and we've got our support desk and people come through on a daily basis, I am speaking to some very, very clever electrical engineers, electricians in this country. They are they are people who just get it. They understand the calculations and they pride themselves on understanding the regulations and the numbers. And they interpret them slightly differently, but they interpret them, which is the which is the start point. In terms of competence, I do think there is a massive issue with you can qualify to, to to levels one or two or whatever they are these days and you can go out and say you're an electrician and you can work and get paid like an electrician and there is no incentive unless you work for a, a conscientious employer who wants you to progress more there is no incentive so you're getting paid like an electrician and the guy beside you has got 20 years of level one, two, three, uh, additional courses, additional short courses that they've gone on to learn design or to, to test an inspection and solar PVs and EVs. They've done all of this additional checks, but you're getting paid the same as them. There's no incentive there. Just mm-hmm. So I'd say the competence issue is around that incentivizing people to continuously professionally develop themselves to get themselves to a point to say, do you know what? The more I learn, the more I earn. And and that's that's where you can see it. And and that's not necessarily with TCW because the people who communicate with me through TCW, they're so clever. And sometimes I have to go back to the drawing board and I'm thinking they've asked me a question on that calculation and I feel like they're right. Even though I know Mm. even though I know it's bulletproof now with what we've got in the system, I still go away and think I just check that because I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but yeah, so from a competence perspective, I'd say our issue is 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 not management supervisor, the people who are continuously trying to progress into into more kind of earning more money. It's the people who are kind of hand to mouth who see no benefit to upskill themselves. Mm. No, yeah, definitely. I think one of the things that kind of came out of the um, Dame Julius Hackett report was um, collaboration between trades. Um, and obviously, you're kind of seeing a lot of the the other side of it as well with the gas um, and the and the other trades that kind of come through TCW. Is there a reflection that it is coming the other way from from that side of things as well? No, no, I'd I'd say um, I I would say from a gas perspective, which is really interesting because if I was to sign a new customer tomorrow and they and I sat in the room with the gas manager or the gas engineer and the electrical engineer I can tell you right now that it's the electrical one who will question everything the gas one will just get on with it mm-hmm. um, and and I wouldn't say that there's a that's a split of 50 50 I'd say I can guarantee you that if I signed a new customer tomorrow and we put a 10,000 documents in 5,000 gas and 5,000 and electrical I'd spend the next four weeks trying to trying to sell the dream of our technology to the electrician where the gas guy would just get on with it and mm. um, take that how you will. I, I, I don't know why that is. Right. Is, is that probably, well, I'm just going to throw hazard a guess out there, but have they got more of a rudimentary tick sheet 
operation rather than the nuance of testing and implementing other you know or affecting other results no the gas industry is as technical i'd say as the electrical there's there's there are checks that need to be applied example if you if you put a i don't know a worcester bosch 28i boiler and you're testing that on an lgsr that worcester bosch 28i has to have a an operating pressure of 28.5 or 7.5 it has to have combustion analysis of 0.008 or less and if you've got a, a co reading and a co2 reading parts per million there's calculations you divide one by ten thousand they, they have all of those in engineering calculation validations on it mm. and there is still levels of interpretation so a room sealed appliance on a gas document there is still a requirement to check the ventilation yet you ask 50% of the gas industry, they say, no, you don't check ventilation on a room sealed appliance because it's room sealed. And then when you say to them, what if that flue goes out into some ivy that's on the side of the building and that ivy's grown over the flue? Aren't you checking that that ventilation, that flue is expelling air out into the atmosphere and it's not being blocked? And then some of them go, oh, that's a really valid point. So you have the similar conversations with gas engineers as you do with electrical, but it's, it's less... Oh, what's the right word without getting a lot of grief for it? It's all right. They won't listen. They won't listen. <laughs> Let's say that it does seem like electricians have a chip on their shoulder. And I think they've they've yet to understand that if you get 10 electricians in a room who have all been in the industry for 30 years, who have all done different things in those 30 years, but have all found themselves in a funnel to one particular job, they find it hard to appreciate that all 10 of them will judge things differently based on their experience they've had in the past they're all right they're all they're all right but they'll all argue that they're right as opposed to seeing do you know what let's widen the lens a little bit we might all have experienced different things and we're all right in a sense but let's find a consistent approach and let's find that consistent one answer as opposed to arguing amongst ourselves to try and find out who's right and who's wrong and and that's noticeable i think from from what we do yeah no i, I can see that uh, you know having been a um, an nic icqs before looking over you know certificates as very much as you kind of do day in day out now it's i can see where those sort of conversations would crop up you know that when we went over to the massive tick sheets you know then it, it's even more debate you know what you do and don't tick so you yeah know, yeah i can see that absolutely in terms of competence then what do you think the ultimate goal should be oh how do i answer this without giving it away um i believe it's got to be very careful ryan what you see here (laughs) um technology is going to play a pivotal role in terms of what the quality and competence is throughout the country we need to harness new ways of working so that we can see and do with regards to the information we gather on a day-to-day basis. I think just leaving the industry as it is, we're never going to fix anything. But if we can if we can inspire Sparkies, the good ones, the conscientious ones, the ones that maybe don't feel as, as confident as they should, if we can inspire them to do a little bit more to, to help the rest, I think gradually things will change but what i would say is to the end of that because that won't make any sense to most people watch this space um there's definitely something on the horizon excellent well i look forward to that (laughs) 
keep an eye out. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, it's been um, really fascinating chatting with you again. You know, I feel like um, I'm slightly optimistic that the data is available. So. <laughs> yeah, the data is available and we, we are talking to senior organisations, uh, Electrical Safety First, the Gas Safe Register. There's, they, they haven't said they don't want the information. They're just trying to find the right way to present that information. So there is ongoing conversations that we can that we can probably do in the future to kind of help the whole industry and, and, and more industries with that information. But we have to do it right. We we can't upset people. We can't we can't point fingers at people. If we can use derived data and insights to benefit an industry and regulation, we should. But we should definitely avoid pointing fingers at people and brands and organisations to say you're doing this wrong. It, that's the wrong way to do things. You just create animosity. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you say, data is anonymous, isn't it? It's a great way to validate a point without absolutely. accusation. So. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Yeah, I know uh, I've asked you before about what your favourite movie is, so I'm going to say in the last couple of years since we last spoke, what's what's been your favourite film in the last couple of years? Oh, do, do I get time to watch the telly these days? I, I am going to go very testosterone fueled <laughs> and say... When I watched Top Gun Maverick, I instantly went home and bought it on Amazon and it's now in my house and I've watched it about five times. I just, I loved the movie. I loved how kind of manly jet fight pilot, but I also loved how it's very clear that someone sat down and there are so many references to the first one. And somebody's been meticulous to to tag the the first one with the second one. I just think it's been very well written. And uh, so yeah, I'm going to say Top Gun Maverick. I'm I'm sticking to that one. I've still I've still not seen the first, so I'm going to have Never. to. No, I haven't. I was I was a proper geek, and my wife went to San Diego for a conference way back when, and there was a martial arts conference at the time when I used to teach karate. And I said, Do you know what? I'll come with you, and we'll spend two weeks in San Diego. And as we were on the flight over, there was a guy sat next to me. He says, why are you going to San Diego? And wife says, Perfusion Conference. And I said, I'm attending a two-day martial arts conference. He said, oh, I thought you were going over there for Top Gun. And I was like, what? <laughs> what about Top Gun? And he said, that's where it was filmed. So that whole two weeks I spent every night in the bar where they played Great Balls of Fire on the piano. Oh, right. I went up the street where he went on his motorbike to uh, to see the, the, the last on. I went everywhere, Colorado Beach, and I was just in awe that I was at Top Gun, the original <laughs> Top Gun set. It was a bit brilliant. of a geek, a bit of a geek. That's brilliant. You know, like I say, it's been a pleasure chatting with you again, and, uh, you know, hopefully we can do it again in the future. Yeah, thanks, Gary. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening.